Um, and that leads really well into the other parts of my job. So my main job is on campus is I lead what's called financial health studios. <clears throat> and the basic premise around it is that we believe that at the root of so many of the problems outside of the medical space that affect health, like your housing situation, whether or not you can access food, whether or not you can afford your medicines, at the root of all of those things is money. And so our main job is to work at the intersection of financial services, workforce development, and healthcare. We know that people tend to trust their doctors. They tend to frequent their doctor's offices, especially if you have little ones. Um, Y'all probably don't have kiddos. If you do, you know what I'm talking about, but you'll see the pediatrician very regularly. And so it's one of those few places in the community that you go to really regularly. And so we can implement services like helping people set up savings accounts, helping them find a job, getting ready for their resume to be in a good spot to make sure that they can get that job, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. An effort to increase people's incomes and decrease their expenses because we believe that wealth is health. The more money you have, the better able you are to meet your needs. And then my last job on campus is I teach. So I'm at the policy school as a basis, but I have students from all over campus. Now, all over the world because of Zoom <laughs> in the coming weeks. Um, and we've got um, graduate students only. Unfortunately, I understand you all are undergrads, but if you stay at UT, we can, we can hang out in class too. So business, policy, engineering, medicine, nursing, social work, um, architecture, I'm probably missing a couple in there. Uh, we're all in the same classroom. We learn about the social determinants of health, which you may have heard of. So a lot of those things I was just talking about, housing, food, et cetera, what policies there are, what programs there are. And then the latter two thirds of the class is we put the students in these multidisciplinary teams and they work together to build business plans for startup organizations that address some of the problems that they learn about in class. They partner with organizations in the community They come with me out on the bus to see the problems up close, to meet the people who are facing the problems, to try to build solutions alongside the people who are facing the problems we're trying to solve. So anyway, that's a broad overview of my three jobs at UT Austin. Um, I'm a Hoosier, so that means I'm from Indiana. That's where I was born. I went my, did my undergrad at a private institution there, went out to Stanford where I got my MD and my MBA. So if anybody's interested in a joint degree program, I can talk a little bit about that decision point and what it meant to pick an MBA versus other types of joint degrees or not pick another degree because it's a long process anyway. And I went out to Harvard after Stanford to do my training in pediatrics. So I worked at um, Boston Children's Hospital, Boston Medical Center, Brigham and Women's Hospital, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. You may have heard of some of these places on the East Coast. And then I married a Texan and that's how I started to look down south to where all of you are. Um, and so we Actually, she's 36 weeks pregnant, so we are expecting our first little one here very soon. Um, and so I get to practice my pediatrics all the time after that. Um, so anyway, that's, that's kind of the path of my education, um, the job that I have at UT. I can talk a little bit if you all want. I had a kind of a pathway through international development. I thought I was, I don't know if you've all heard of Paul Farmer before, but there's a gentleman out of Boston who started this organization called Partners in Health. There's a really wonderful book about him called uh, Mountains Beyond Mountains, written by Tracy Kidder. And he was my inspiration for a long time. I thought I wanted to be Paul Farmer. And so I did a lot of work in the Sub-Saharan, in Latin America. I lived in Haiti for a year after the earthquake in 2010. So I took a year off of medical school. Um, and was doing a lot of that work. The long story short is that eventually I got back into clinics here in the States and saw a lot of the same kinds of suffering I had seen abroad uh, right in our backyard. And so my focus shifted towards childhood poverty in the United States as the means of figuring out ways to build programs, companies, policies that would address the issues that are facing kids locally. So. I can talk more about that. I've built a few companies along the way, which I can tell you all about. Um, we have one right now going on in Austin called Good Apple. If you're in Austin, um, we could use your help. The long story short is we're a pediatrician prescribed grocery delivery service on a mission to end child hunger. But because of the pandemic, 
we've realized that there are a lot of folks in the Eastern Crescent who are low income and seniors. You know, when you get older, as you may know, your immune system gets weaker. And so those people are encouraged even more so, um, but everyone is, um, but they're definitely have to stay at home to stay away from the potential for infection because they don't have very strong immune systems. And so that means if you're low income and you have to stay at home and you don't have a grocery store in your neighborhood, that you have a hard time getting food. So we're leveraging the infrastructure of Good Apple to start to get food to low income seniors uh, in East Austin who really need it. So we're able to have some partnerships with the city's Department of Transportation, um, with some local funders, with uh, potential partnerships with like Lyft and Bird and some of the delivery services, um, as well as obviously the food banks and the food pantries and some of those folks who are helping us source a lot of our foods from the farms. So that was a lot of me blabbering on. I don't really want to blabber. I would prefer to answer your questions and talk about what it is that you care about. Um, I know at this stage, I can tell you that I would not have predicted that I would be doing the kind of stuff that I'm doing now. Um, and so there's a little bit of that time old answer that people give you of like, oh, you just gotta be in the right place at the right time or you know, wait for the things to happen to you and then you'll change your direction. Um, unfortunately, there's some of that that's true, but I also think there's a lot of planning and foresight and vision setting that you can do now to think about what it is that actually gets you out of bed in the morning that you care about most because that's the ideal place for your career, right? Is where work and play kind of blend together because you like it. Um, so I can hopefully help you get that. I realize it's tough on a screen like we're doing now, and as many people as we have to have too much one-on-one -on -one interaction, but know that once this pandemic is over, uh, maybe Chase can provide you my email. I'm always happy to meet with you one-on-one, -on -one, to talk on the phone, to have a Skype call or a Zoom call or whatever, um, to talk individually with each of you. Yeah, I'm not there, Chase, but you let me know what, what you what questions you might have. Yeah, so, uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for uh, being so open with us. And I hope that we, uh, we hopefully can kind of use some of uh, you know, some of your guidance to hopefully help us kind of along our way. And I would just like to encourage everybody again, if you have any questions, please uh, enter them in the group chat. There's a little button down at the bottom. And so we do actually have some, some questions coming in. So um, um, Georgia asks, what drew you to pediatrics? Rachel asks, uh, why did you choose to get an MBA? So those are both, uh, I'm sure a lot what about, of What about Quentin, who said something so nice? <laughs> Oh, yes. Yes. Well, Quinn's a sweetheart. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think I said that when you said uh, you're, you're um, expecting a child soon. But yeah, congrats. That's oh, awesome. nice. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Uh, maybe we'll name him or her Quentin in your honor. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so Georgia, right? Um, so pediatrics for me, I mean, you will find as you go through your training that obviously you get a chance to see all of the different types of specialties. And so I would encourage you before I tell you anything about pediatrics to have an open mind. Um, there were certainly specialties that I thought I was going to like going through medical school that I didn't. And there were ones that I thought I was going to hate that I ended up really liking. And so there's a little bit of, um, there's like what the culture says is a certain specialty and what it's like, and then there's actually what it's like when you're there. Um, at your stage, I would encourage you as much as you can to shadow. I think, you know, I wouldn't overburden yourself with like going to the same person to shadow all the time. I would try to figure out if you can figure out um, connections in lots of different specialties, and I'm happy to help with that too. So you can see a lot of different people in action. Now is a bad time, um, obviously with the pandemic, but. Once that settles, um, the only way to really get a good sense of what it's like is to be in it. And also say within every specialties, like pediatrics, for example, depending on what your practice is like um, and where you practice, it can look really different. So I'm only outpatient and my practice is on a bus. So that's different than if you are in the ICU in the hospital every day. Um, and so within each specialty, there are sub branches of specialty and you'll start to get a good sense of that once you go through of how you might fall in love with an organ, for example, and want to become a pediatric cardiologist. There's a pathway for that. Um, I chose pediatrics for a few reasons. One is that I think kids are more fun. 
I love uh, being with them. They make me happy. Um, I think that uh, two, I find the physiology of children a bit more interesting. Um, the pediatric heart, for example, is way different than the adult heart. Um, and those are things that you'll learn about. And I just thought that was more interesting. Um, the other thing, and this has become a more, you know, last decade or so of my path, so much, luckily, so many children are really healthy, but the things that actually prevent them from reaching their full potential have a lot to do with exactly what I was talking about at the beginning, where they grow up. Um, there's a saying in, in medicine that your zip code matters more to your health than your genetic code. And I think that's very true. If you live in a really low income neighborhood and maybe you're experiencing violence um, and maybe you experience homelessness, maybe your family doesn't have enough money to make ends meet to fix a car so mom can't go to work and she can't buy enough food. All of these things trickle down to how well kids are able to do in school, the kinds of graduation rates they have, the kinds of jobs they're able to get when they're adults. Uh, and that matters to their health too. And so if we as health professionals are folks who are bent on improving the health of individuals and populations, we have to start caring about uh, the things outside of medicine that make people healthy or not. And likewise, if we are people who tout to care about the future of the country, and the world, then we have to be people who care about the people who will actually be living in that future, which is our children. And so um, I, I can talk a lot about pediatrics for a long time, but I'm gonna stop there. I can move on to the next question. You, you, you run the show, Chase. You tell me if you wanna go to the next question or if you wanna dive in deeper with pediatrics for some reason. Happy um, to tell you about you know, any nitty gritty logistics details about how do you get there, all that kind of stuff. I'm happy to chat with. Yeah, um, well, let's see. So we, 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 we don't have too many questions yet. Um, so if you want to dive in a little bit more, I was definitely curious about uh, the whole MBA program. And actually, our last speaker, Dr. Sue Cox. Um, oh, yeah. The, yeah, she, at, she's at Dell as well. And she was talking to us about all the um, kind of dual degree programs that Dell offers. And one of them was the MBA. She, she talked a little bit about kind of the projects that you guys do as, as a part of that. And um, yeah, so I was kind of wondering... Um, like in addition to why you chose to get an MBA, kind of what that process is like, especially at Dell, if you could speak to that. Yeah, Dell is really unique nationally, uh, if you all didn't know, um, in, this, in the sense that they give their third year medical students their year uh, to do something outside of the traditional medical training. In other words, most schools, like where I went to at Stanford, you do two years of book work and then you have two years of clinical work. And that's just kind of how it was. Um, Dell Medical School, you do one year of book work, you do your first year of clinical work, all the required rotations, so the big big ones like internal medicine, pediatrics, OBGYN, general surgery, and so forth. And then your third year, you have off, in air quotes, to pursue a second degree, be in a lab for a year, working on some research project. We actually even have entrepreneur and residence programs, so for example, the gentleman who's running Good Apple with me is a third year medical student who's taken his year to build this company. Um, and so there's lots of different opportunities for them. Um, if you put me in Dell Medical School's shoes, it would have been a tough decision about whether I wanted to get the MBA or be an entrepreneur in residence because I kind of wanted to do both. Um, and we can, we can talk a little bit more about uh, the decision making tree that I went through with Zach, is his name, who was starting this Good Apple company. Um, I got an MBA because when I was, so I did two years of medical school and then the earthquake in Haiti happened. And so I left med school to go to Haiti. Um, what I quickly realized was that even though you've learned and studied really hard for two years, you don't actually know a lot of medicine after two years of medical school. Um, and so what I ended up doing a lot of my time in Haiti was administrative in nature. So I was building budgets. I was trying to build teams and lead people. Uh, things that I think some medical schools teach a little bit, but it's certainly not the core of the curriculum. And as I learned more, it's certainly the core of business school curricula and certainly was at Stanford where I went. And so um, I went to business school, one, because I wanted those types of skills. I thought I'd be better equipped as a physician someday to lead if I actually had some business savviness to me. Um, two, I wanted to build companies that were addressing 
some of those upstream problems outside of medicine, the housing, the food, the job security, et cetera. Um, and business school seemed like a natural place to do that. Three, business school offers in a very different way than medical school, a much more diverse crowd. And what I mean by that is diverse, diversity in industry. So in a business school classroom, you have doctors, you've also got engineers and nurses and people who've been on Wall Street and people who've worked in nonprofit sectors kind of all over the spectrum. In, in a typical medical school classroom, it's mostly people who studied science, studied public health, um, and maybe a one-off you know, person who was a lawyer for a while and decided to go back to medical school or whatever it might be. And so there's just a different vibe to the room, and which means a vibe to the discussion. Uh, in a business school classroom, you have a much more likelihood of having some Republicans, some Democrats. And so that makes policy conversations a lot more interesting, I thought. Um, and it's a little more homogenous if you're thinking about a medical school crowd. So that was another reason that I was really excited about it. Um, and then I think finally, um, it's been interesting to me to understand within the medical field, when there is a business question, people look to me because I have that degree. And when I'm in the business place and people have a question about health, people look to me because I have the MD degree. And so it's offered, it's kind of, um, it's really broadened the level of influence I can have on how decisions are made and how we go about serving more people. Because I think that there's a lot of power at the intersection of disciplines. And I would encourage you, if you even if you don't want to go get another degree, to seek out partners as you're building projects to address certain problems that are outside of your expertise. It's really easy to like partner with your buddy who's also a doctor. It's a little harder to partner with somebody who has finance background and you don't know anything about finance, but my guess is that they'll have a different thinking about the problem that you're thinking about and that the solution will be better as a result of you two working together than it would be if you were to stay kind of within your bubble. And that probably is like a larger life lesson that I'm missing out on there. But that's the long story about why business school. Um, and I think for Dell Med, they finish their curriculum within the year. And they come back to their fourth year and finish out the rest of the rotations. Where I did it, um, it was actually about a year and a half of MBA, which meant that I did medical school in three and a half years. So it was actually a five-year total program. So it's nice at Dell that they cut that year out for you or whoever else is in the program now. Yeah, awesome. Um, so, yeah, I, I really, I mean, I think that's true that it definitely getting that dual degree gives you kind of a foot in two different almost worlds. Um, I think that's super interesting. And that kind of goes into Alex's question. Her name on here is Ian, but it, that's it. Don't worry about it, basically. Um, but her question is, uh, um, as someone with entrepreneurship experience, how can we practice advocacy and activism through our own fields rather than just focusing on kind of the traditional avenues that people in general kind of try to affect policy um yeah it's a it's a great question what sorry what is your name not ian someone else ashley it's, it's actually alex but i think she's using her mother's <laughs> account so, so yeah but <laughs> okay um i mean the first thing to understand is that i think to your point advocacy can be done on multiple levels it could be writing an op-ed to the new york times in hopes that the president reads it all the way down to advocating to Chase that you want this meeting to be shorter because you don't like the guy talking. So advocacy has a lot of different flavors to it. Um, there is, of course, state and federal and local policies that are affecting the way that people live. There is even university policies that you could advocate for to the president's office or to the deans of the school or to the faculty council or whatever it is that's making your life not as good as it could be. Um, there's lots of different ways to advocate. So um, I think the typical ways we think about are sitting across from a legislator on Capitol Hill and giving them a one pager and practicing your pitch and trying to influence them. But there are other things that you all certainly could do now, like writing for the local newspapers or being on the radio or a local TV station about some topic that you care about. Um, the other nice thing about, I think you mentioned, Alex, the entrepreneurship experience. I mean, 
the way that I see it, and the reason that I'm at a university is I kind of see it as a cycle where um, research identifies where there's a gap. Entrepreneurship, because it works really quickly, tries to address that gap with some innovative approach. Research, again, studies whether or not that innovative approach worked. And if it did, then it informs policy at a much larger level so that you can scale that approach that worked. And once that policy is implemented, research identifies where there's a new gap. Innovation or entrepreneurship comes in to address it. We study whether or not it works, it influences, and that's kind of a policy entrepreneurship research cycle that I think about. And so um, if you build a program, for example, as an undergraduate at UT, and in the example of Good Apple, it's addressing food insecurity. And along the way, you notice something like, for example, we were recently noticing that a lot of our low-income families with really young children, babies, uh, were missing out on WIC, which is this program for women, infants, and children that offers them formula and help with breastfeeding and that kind of stuff. Um, they were missing out on it because it requires an in-person registration. And because of the pandemic, people aren't able to go to the offices because they closed the offices. And so therefore, there's all these people who need the service that can't get it. And so in the midst of our entrepreneurship world, building out these solutions and interacting with people who are taking advantage of our solutions, we identified a problem and then wrote an op-ed and advocated to other people who could change it. And now you can do WIC enrollment online um, and via telephone and those kinds of Actually, I don't know if the online thing is done yet. I shouldn't say that if this is um, recorded, but um, telephone for sure, and I think online is hopefully coming. But anyway, long story short is um, it definitely all fits together, and I think uh, I'd be ha more than happy to talk with you, Alex, or others who've got an idea in mind about how you want to advocate for something to be done differently than it is, and what are the different avenues and options, and who's doing something similar. I think that's the other thing that's real true is the more I'm in the entrepreneurship space, which is supposed to be about creating something new, the more I find, well, there's already like 10 people working on it. So I don't want to re recreate the wheel and I can also understand what they're doing and try to figure out if there is a niche to be filled. Yeah, that's great. Um, okay, so, well, I, I kind of wanted to ask a follow-up. I think you talking about kind of the research, entrepreneurship research cycle is, I mean, I mean, it's fascinating. and. Obviously, we see that in a lot of places and, you know, kind of first and foremost in everybody's minds is like the coronavirus situation right now. And I know maybe people are kind of tired of hearing about that, but um, do you see that kind of cycle happening in real time right now? And um, like, do you, do you think that, that there's a reason uh, to kind of have hope even in this kind of really trying time where a lot of people are stressed out kind of, um, I just was really curious about your take on that. Mm -hmm. The, the short answer is yes uh, to both of those questions. Um, I'll start with the hope piece, which is a little bit less related to the cycle. Um, but last night, for example, my wife and I were walking uh, outside of our home. And I don't know, we were several blocks away. We were walking by a public housing unit. And there was this older gentleman there who, based on where he's living, I'm going to assume that he was fairly low income. and. We're walking there down the street and he yells at us and says, Hey, are you pregnant? My wife. And we we're like, yes, obviously she's 36 weeks. We're huge. Um, and, and he ran into his house and got two masks and two pairs of gloves for us and said, I would rather get this virus than you who is with child. And so please take this stuff. Um, and that was really heartwarming for me and inspiring of hope in the sense that I'm a tall white male and my wife is also white. We're walking through a neighborhood. We obviously look privileged. And here's a gentleman who is giving us who knows how many masks and things he has saved up, potentially his last, because he cares more about that baby than he does himself. And so um, I think there is a silver lining to what we are seeing amid these trying times, which is that people's kindness is shining through. Um, and I, you know, I've had to go to a couple of places in town to pick up prescriptions and pick up groceries and people seem to be um, extra patient and loving, which I think is 
something that we all need a little bit more. I think the other interesting piece as it relates to the research is it's causing all of us as university professors to reevaluate whether or not the work we do we are doing is important enough. I think there are certain pressures within an academic system that we will learn about if you go into academics someday around this phrase publish or perish. Uh, some of these kinds of things where we're you know, certain things that we're graded on, if you will, that may or may not be aligned with actually what's most important in terms of impact on people's lives. And so because some of that research has halted, it's causing us to reevaluate whether or not the projects should be restarted or if we should tackle something else that actually has more meaning. Um, and so um, that was a long rambling way of saying, yes, there is hope. In terms of seeing it in real time, there is certainly the innovation piece of it. So I mentioned to you earlier the Good Apple, which is, you know, had this existing infrastructure, saw a new need with the pandemic, capitalizing on that existing operations to then meet a new need in the pandemic as a result. Um, and then we are, as a result, going to need to study what it is that we're doing and whether or not we're having impact. And some of these public-private partnerships with the lifts and the you know, Department of Transportation and so forth, um, that's, that's entrepreneurship in and of itself as well because they're partnerships that potentially weren't in place before there was a real stark need for it as a result of the pandemic. And so we're seeing, I, th I think the short answer, Chase, is yes, we're seeing that cycle in real time. And, um, and I imagine it will continue um, for at least until the pandemic is over and probably longer. Yeah, that's great. Um, okay, so we've got some other questions. So Isaac uh, is asking, does your time in pediatrics cause you to look at having a child of your own differently? It's a very interesting question. <laughs> uh, my, my, wife, my wife always makes fun of me because um, whenever she's sick, I have a very, not as maybe as loving as I should be, I guess is the long story short, because I'm like, you're fine. You're not dying. Um, and some of that comes from working in Boston Children's Hospital, for example, where because it's a Harvard-affiliated institution, there's a lot of really, really sick kids, often with multiple problems, um, often coming from all over the world for kind of their last-ditch effort to save them. Um, and that means that I was surrounded a lot in my job for three years at least by really, really, really sick children. And so that certainly caused me to maybe, to my wife's point, be less sympathetic when somebody has a cold um, than I am when they have a life-threatening condition. With that said, um, I have no idea what it's going to be like to be a parent, and my suspicion is that I will be overly cautious. And also, um, it's going to be interesting to see how I interact with the pediatrician if they recommend something differently than what I think. So I'm going to have to cross that bridge when I get to it. I have not told my wife's OB to this day, and I've known her for 36 weeks now, that I'm a physician. So I've been kind of hiding back, waiting so we'll see how it goes in the delivery room. Thanks for asking, Isaac. Yeah, waiting in the wings if anything goes wrong. Actually, uh, yeah. No. Um, okay, so yeah, that was, that was interesting to hear. Um, so Quentin has a question. Um, can, you, you, can you, you can see the chat, is that right? Yeah, I just don't have my glasses on me. So I'm, can you tell us about a challenging experience that you've had on your journey, how you tackled it, and any key takeaways that would help us? That's a good question. Well, I don't know where you all are from and where your families are. I think one of the biggest challenges that I faced early in my journey, at least coming up to your journey, was uh, this decision around where I went to medical school. Um, as I mentioned, I'm from Indiana, and I went to a private institution called Butler for undergrad in Indiana. Um, and then I got into Stanford, and I moved basically from the Midwest to the West Coast. Um, and I was really, really homesick. I really missed my family. Um, I didn't know anybody there. It's the first time living outside the state. And so I struggled as a result with being able to concentrate and focus as much as I needed to, to do really well with medical school. Medical school, as you will find, you probably heard before, is, is like drinking from a water fountain. There's a lot of information coming at you. And so being able to focus, take care of yourself, while you're learning that stuff is only going to make you learn it easier 
than you would if you've got something else distracting going on. And so um, I tackled it by making a lot of friends and calling home as much as I could and staying in touch with the people that were far away from me as much as I possibly could. Um, and then to be honest, when I took that year off in Haiti, the other thing that I did um, was instead of having a home base to fly back to in California, I flew back to Indianapolis and got to see my family regularly whenever I was back in the States. Um, and so that helped a little bit as a as kind of a, a mental break from all of that. Um, I guess the key takeaway there is to think about as you pursue this journey, there's a lot of natural steps along the way where you have a chance to maybe move somewhere else. You live in Austin now, but maybe you're gonna to go to medical school in Washington and maybe you're gonna to go to residency in California and maybe you're gonna to go to fellowship in DC. If you have an option to think about at these very natural, already defined for you time periods of where you wanna live, um, and think about the support systems that you have there. For me, you know, looking back, I would not have, I don't regret going to Stanford. Uh, it was an amazing experience, um, but it hurt at the beginning because I hadn't really anticipated what it was gonna be like to live away from home for the first time. And so, um, you know, when I left Stanford, I was, I went, at that point I was comfortable living away from home, so I wanted to see another part of the country, which is why we ended up on the East Coast. And then, you know, now down in the South. So I live in the four corners. Um, but if you had told me that was gonna be the case about six months into my time at Stanford, I would have said, forget it, I'm going back home to Indiana as soon as this stupid thing is done. Um, and that obviously wasn't the case. So anyway, I think that's one. I, there's a, I had a whole lot of stumbling points along the way. So that's a time for another conversation with y'all. Um, and, and, and certainly um, as you come across stumbling points, I hope you all see me as a, as a resource and, and as, a, as a listening ear um, and somebody to help you strategize through those next steps as you go on this journey, which is quite, quite long, I have to say. So um, we need you to stay healthy physically and mentally along the way so you can get through it. Yeah, definitely. And uh, if you're okay with it, um, I can definitely uh, share your email on our Facebook page, if that's all right, um, if people want to reach out with questions. Yeah, cool. Awesome, okay, great. Um, okay, so we have kind of a long question, but it's about, it is about COVID-19. Um, yeah, I can, I can kind of read the gist of it. So uh, Sam says, I know the goal right now is kind of to flatten the curve so that um, healthcare facilities aren't overwhelmed. And his question is, do you think it'll be necessary to set up impromptu hospitals like they did in China to increase the, basically the carrying capacity? Um, and if it's necessary, are there barriers to setting up the facilities? And do you think we'll be able to do it in a matter of weeks like they were able to do in China? Good question, Sam. Um, so you're right. The goal is to flatten the curve. Does everyone know what flatten the curve means? Looks like I'm getting a lot of head shaking out there. Good. Um, and the, the whole reason for flattening the curve is not just so that not as many people get it, um, which is certainly what we hope for, but is is not to overwhelm the system. You're hearing probably a lot of reports of you know, this thing called PPE, which stands for personal protective equipment, which is masks and gloves and gowns and shoe covers and all that kind of stuff. Um, if we overwhelm the system with a really spike in the curve, then those kinds of things become more and more scarce. It becomes more and more hard to protect ourselves as providers as we're caring for other people. And so, um, around whether or not it's gonna be necessary to set up impromptu hospitals. My suspicion, and this is totally my personal speculation, is that it's gonna be very heavily dependent on where we are in the country. Um, so, you know, for example, in Boston, yes, there are more people than there are in other parts of the country, but there, like every other person there is a doctor. There's a ton of hospitals um, within the Harvard-affiliated system. And so my suspicion is that in places like that, there might be less need over time. I don't know that for sure. I'm not talking to anybody in Boston. Don't quote me on that. Um, but if you go to rural Indiana, which is where I live, I grew up in an 800 person farm town, and you're asking people to quarantine and they get sick, local hospitals don't have as much capacity. So it's possible that there might be more need for impromptu types of facilities in those types of locations. As you've already seen, there's been some interesting innovations around um, 
you know, drive-through testing. Uh, my wife needed to get an extra shot the other day, and so instead of her going to the clinic and risking being exposed, she drove to the grocery store, sat in her car, and a pharmacist came out. She rolled down the window, stuck her in the arm with a shot, and went on her way. So there are these impromptu, very unusual ways of practicing medicine that haven't been the case before. Um, my practice is doing a little bit of telehealth now, which is new. Um, there are certain platforms that are HIPAA compliant. So HIPAA is a law that protects any of us from doctors sharing information that shouldn't be shared. We wouldn't want to share with other people. And so what has happened in this emergency is that um, there have been loosenings of restrictions so that we could use things like Google Hangouts, for, for example, um, to have a conversation with the patient that might not traditionally meet the standards, but because it's such a high need and the telehealth platforms aren't able to accommodate all of the need, we have to find out other ways for me to be in this spare bedroom talking to patients um, and answering their questions. Um, in regards to the barriers in setting up the facilities, I mean, I think I've been pleasantly surprised with um, how funders have come to the table in this time. Um, before the pandemic, I spent a lot of time trying to fundraise, going to people and saying, there's a big problem with child homelessness or there's a big problem with food insecurity. Can you help us? Um, now it's the opposite. It's funders coming to the table and saying, we've got extra money. Who's doing stuff that matters? Here's some money. Um, and so usually I would say that setting up those kind of things would be a money issue. I'm actually encouraged both from uh, looking at it from a policy angle as well as some of the private players as well as some of the angel investors. They're kind of coming out of the woodwork to help, um, which I think is another, to your point earlier, Chase, around where is their hope, um, the idea that people get it and that they're wanting to come together. Whether or not we can do it like China, I'm gonna let the administration answer that. I have no idea. Sorry. No, that, that's great. That's a fascinating answer and something I'm sure we should, we should all be keeping our eye on, you know, as, future healthcare providers. Um, all right, so Jonathan has a question. Uh, does your wife work in healthcare? And what is your com uh, what did your conversation about family versus career look like? And especially pertinent with the kid coming up. So. Great question. Um, my wife is not in healthcare. Uh, she works for this place called the Texas Education Agency, which is the state's Department of Education. And she's one of the associate commissioners. So she's on kind of the second tier of leadership there. Uh, we met in business school, so she was a former consultant, um, a strategy consultant for businesses, and then kind of got into the social impact and education niche. Uh, so when we landed in Austin, she was looking for a transition from the private sector into the public sector, which is how she ended up in state government. So she is very, very busy, as you can imagine, because all of the schools have closed, and everyone's running around trying to figure out how do we educate our kids in an effective way while we are trying to protect them from infections and protect the community from infections. Um, there's a lot of evidence to suggest, for example, that uh, in schools that have summer breaks, so they're not year-round, that especially among children who grow up in low-income settings, they get really far behind in their learning during that time. If you're in a higher middle-income setting, the, the thinking is that those children are more surrounded with resources to keep them up to pace, and that if you're not, then you can really fall behind. And so over, I, and I, my wife would kill me if I misquoted it, so I'm not really sure what the, the, the actual grade level difference would be, but over a long period of time, when you have summer breaks and you're low income, you end up several grade levels behind your peers as a result. So anyway, all that to say, we can't just close our schools and hope everybody does good, because it just doesn't happen, and we have to figure out how to educate them from afar. Um, probably like you're learning in the classroom, although maybe a little bit different type of way as undergraduates. Um, yeah. What does the conversation around conversa uh, family and career look like? <laughs> it's hard. I mean, I think that's, I would imagine that a lot of you in this chat today are ambitious folks, and you'll probably end up partnering with someone else who's also ambitious. Um, and so it becomes this really, really important question around what your values are. Um, for me, personally, my values of faith and family are more important to me than my career. Uh, and so that means that sometimes I have to make trade-offs. And um, luckily that my wife is aligned in that way. 
And so we're able to have those conversations and figure out what it is that we do moving forward. We have a, a tradition in our family, um, which is young. We were only married about a year ago. Um, but we have every Sunday a state of the union, although it's a state of the marriage union. And we discuss what we can be doing better um, and what things aren't working very well. And a lot of the time that conversation revolves around work because we both do work a lot. Um, and so we realize too that that's probably going to change when the baby comes along. But um, we'll cross that bridge when, when he or she arrives. Yeah, that's that's great. State of the Union. I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to steal that. Um, so actually, I kind of want to. So we'll get to George's next question. But Anne had an interesting question that kind of relates back to the work that your wife is involved in, um, and it's especially kind of um, salient. We're doing all online classes, um, and the question is, how do you see broadband affecting different marginalized groups of people? in Austin during the pandemic. And I, I think that definitely ties into, like you said, people of less resources kind of on breaks um, end up behind. And do, do you, uh, I guess this is like a specific version of that, like people, like UT students who maybe don't have reliable internet connection. Um, do you think that that could be a problem or has that been a problem like historically? Like have there been any examples that we can see with that? All I can say is that it absolutely is a problem. I mean, you all are seeing that in the way that you are trying to access education as an undergraduate. I'm sure that you know of people in your classes who maybe don't have the privilege to have broadband to be able to do what you're doing right now. Um, that goes the same for children in elementary school who are trying to connect with their teacher. And that goes the same certainly to patients in the telehealth world who, you know, there have been some statements unfortunately made already that were um, nearsighted in the sense that, oh, we'll just move all of our operations to telehealth. Well, to, to your point, Anne and, and Chase, that's, that's not possible for everyone. So um, it most absolutely affects marginalized groups of folks more than others. Um, I would say that telehealth, uh, unfortunately, isn't to a place where we can offer as good of care that we're able to offer in person for, for some things. For some other things, maybe it's the same, but for a lot of things, I like to be able to listen with my stethoscope, for example. Um, and so it matters. Um, I don't know what, I mean, I think part of the answer, and I'm not in the tech uh, space, is how you get some of these big players that can offer broadband to see that they're really the only ones that can help us address it in the short term and then come on board. I mean, that's an advocacy question, right? Back to what we were talking about earlier. Who do we know in those companies that we can talk to? If we don't know them, can we write an op-ed in the Statesman or tweet at them? Something to get their attention about the need. Um, I think the other thing about advocacy that we'll find a lot of people will sometimes look over, which is actually really unfortunate, is their there's of course a lot of power in the data that we can present to some people that are making these decisions, but so often the emotional piece gets left out and that's what really changes hearts. And so it's the story of your classmate who wanted to come and listen to Dr. Hold and I and couldn't because they didn't have broadband access and it affected their XYZ. And that's a, that's a pretty first world problem, if you will, in terms of talking to me because I'm small potatoes, but if you think about it, from them needing health care to address a certain problem, that's another story. And I think those are the kinds of stories that need to be elevated to people and decision-making authorities so that they can help us get the broadband access to the places that need it most. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, and then circling back to George's question. Um, so she mentions the series Pandemic, which I've never seen, but um, so she says it highlights the discrepancies between migrant and poor families crossing the border, willingly being vaccinated versus kind of the anti-vax movement in Oregon, trying to oppose mandatory vaccinations. Um, and so her question is, do you experience any of this as a pediatrician? And if so, what can you do or what should you say um, to a family that's been misinformed? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, it is a really interesting, I haven't seen that either. Maybe it's a to-do list for tonight. Um, <laughs> There is definitely an obvious socioeconomic bracket where anti-vaxxers come from, and it tends to be really well-educated, uh, white, uh, 
middle and upper class families for whatever reason. Um, vaccinations work, so let me be clear, as a pediatrician, there's a ton of evidence to suggest so. There are diseases that have been eradicated from the planet, essentially, because of them, uh, and they're really, really important. Um, and so the study that came out many, many years ago that really started the anti-vax movement, people have tackled that um, in multiple studies to prove why it wasn't a sound study and why there wasn't evidence to suggest so. Um, when I have seen several kids, especially in residency, I don't see them as much now, that were not vaccinated or were younger and not, not having had the vaccine yet and were around somebody who was not vaccinated and then caught one of these things, like measles, for example, that we hardly see anymore and got really, really sick. Not only potentially costing them their life, but also obviously if you spend a few weeks in the ICU, costing the healthcare system a lot, a lot of money. So. Um, I think as healthcare providers, it is our duty to explain the data to an anti-vaxxer around why it is that we think the way that we do and why it is that we recommend that their child gets vaccinated. Um, it's really easy, to be honest with you, to, as you learn some of these data and dive into some of the studies and be able to read and interpret them better, um, it's really easy to get angry at people who don't believe you. <laughs> Um, but that's, that's the easy thing to do and not the right thing to do. We have to figure out ways to have conversations with people and change their hearts and minds, help them see what it is that we're seeing on the front lines of the effects of not vaccinating children. Um, and, and for whatever reason, um, to your point about migrant families crossing the border, a lot of the families that I serve nowadays and really privileged to say are mostly Spanish speaking only. Uh, many of them are recently immigrated to the United States. Um, and I don't think in the couple years that I've been practicing in Austin, at least I've ever had a family who's not wanted to be vaccinated. And I don't know if that's a cultural thing. I don't know if that's a small sample size, um, but I certainly had a lot more of it when I was in Stanford uh, than I do here now. Great. Um, okay, well, you know, we don't want to take too much of your time, but um, we really appreciate uh, everything. If um, if there's any kind of anything you want to end us on, um, you know, feel free. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, thank you for having me. And it's nice to see your faces. And I hope that you will consider me a resource and reach out if I can be helpful. Um, in the next month or so, it's going to be a little tough. So if I don't answer your email right away, it's no hard feelings. Yeah, we, we absolutely. We should, um, we should talk more. Um, I would say a couple of things. One, you're at a stage in your training to be physicians or nurses or physician assistants or whatever it is that you're going to do in health, um, that it's not too late to look at other things and to consider all of your options. Um, if you have in mind that you want to be, let's say, a pediatric oncologic neurosurgeon, then you've got the rest of your time at UT, four years of med school, seven years of residency, and probably two or three more years of that after that for a fellowship. And so you've got a ton of time ahead of you. And one piece of advice that someone told me was, um, it's easier to change direction the earlier you are in the process. If you get into year six of seven in neurosurgery and you decide you don't want to be a neurosurgeon, it's really hard to stop and to go be a pediatrician. So do the work up front now to really think about what it is that gets you out of bed in the morning, what it is that interests you, what you are most passionate about. Um, someone once told me about the Sunday test, what it is that you're reading about on a Sunday when you don't have to for class, you're just doing it for fun. What are those things? For me, you know, I should have known this a long time ago, I was reading about politics and entrepreneurship. And I finally found my way here, but it was a long road to get to a place where I was really willing to say to myself, most of my time is gonna be spent as an entrepreneur and trying to influence policy, and only a day a week is gonna be spent as a physician. And so think about that. Um, I wouldn't trade it for the world, my day a week of clinics. I think it really makes me better at the rest of my job, but um, you have that flexibility now, you have that luxury. You don't have to study 
biology to be a medical student someday. So I, I studied that. I also studied Spanish. But if you really like politics or history or something else, do that now. Because um, one, you'll thank yourself later for studying something that was interesting to you. And two, actually medical schools like people who have studied something differently um, because it makes you stand out a little bit and it's more interesting. You get a lot of people who are in the sciences and medicine. I'm not telling you to change your major if you really love what you're doing, but just so you know. Um, anyway, thank you for having me. Thanks for the work that you're going to do and you're probably already doing to make people's lives better. Um, and don't waste this privilege that it is that you have being a, a longhorn. It's going to take you places. And so make sure you're doing stuff for others that don't have a chance to be on the screen like you are right now. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Hull. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Well, uh, have a good rest of your extended spring break and good luck with classes via video. I don't know how it's going to work. Thank you. Well, hopefully this is a good practice run for everybody, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it seemed to work well. Yeah. <laughs> All awesome. right. Well, have a good one, everybody. Have a good night. Good night. All right. Thanks, everybody. I think that was uh, fairly successful. So, um, yeah, online meeting. Woo. Um, okay. Well, uh, you know, y'all are free to go. I, I have this recorded, so um, I, I'll post that and I'll post I'll post Dr. Hall's email. But like you said, um, you know, he'll he'll probably be pretty busy for the next few months. So, but you know, seems like a great guy. So hopefully we can uh, utilize that resource. Um, yeah. Thank you, everyone who came. Thanks for taking time out of your day to do some AED. Love that. Yeah, we love you. We miss you guys. <laughs> miss you guys. We miss all of y'all a lot. It really sucks being away from everything. But uh, y'all the best. So good luck um, in these trying times. Check out um, check out the, the update page on Facebook if you want some heartwarming videos. Those are fun. Yeah? OK. And you Y'all are free to go, um, you know, or or we can hang out, you know. Casey, <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I, mean, like, I don't really know what to say at this point. We've got a. Is it still recording? I don't know. I don't know how uh, like Zoom etiquette works. Like, just like face out. And then, I don't know. All, All right. right. Take care, everybody. No, Take Sam, care where are you, Sam? Sam? Where are you? I'm. Uh, I'm on this like porch thing. But it was the sun was too bright, so I, I sat on the ground. <laughs> I was getting a sunburn. All right, well, yes, and I'm also on Uranus, which is uh, <laughs> we've added a porch to our facility. <laughs> it's definitely still recording. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's recording. This is all. This is all more. Okay. I'm going down to posterity. All right, guys. Keep it real. I'm out. Peace right. out. Bye guys. Bye guys. Bye. Yeah, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna close it. So I think it's gonna close the whole thing. But uh, we we should do some Zoom hangouts sometime. Hit me Word. up. All right. Goodbye. Uh, wait, I'm gonna.